the Future Proof Podcast from News Talk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thanks for emailing, subscribing, downloading, rating. Um, how are you finding this new format, by the way? Because um, we were we tried this new thing where we're doing one feature and then we read out your responses and then we do Future Proof Gold and Future Proof Extra. Are you enjoying that? Is that Because it's a lot of more work for us, to be honest. But um, we thought maybe it might work for you. Uh, because sometimes, you know, with an hour and 20 minutes, you just don't get to the last 40 minutes. And that's usually where I spout nonsense. And for some reason, people um, respond reasonably well to that. So uh, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. How, how does this format work for you? Coming up on uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about the GPS system that resides within your brain and how it works. Um, but first, though, it's time to have a look back at the week's science news. And joining me in the studio is uh, Dr. Susan Callagher from UCD. And Dr. Shane Bergen uh, of the same parish. You're both very welcome. Our first story. He's about people who don't want to grow up. Uh, or... <laughs> People who don't want to get old, I suppose. Yes, um, so that's a Tom Wake song, by the way. <laughs> and Susan was looking very. Blue yeah, I was going to. I was. I was relieved I wasn't asked to sing, actually, Jonathan, which is great because <laughs> I couldn't do a good Tom Wake impression. Um, so this is a fascinating story. Um, well, actually, it's, I suppose it's a story based on. Um, uh, a release from the FDA in the States. So the FDA are uh, warning people against um, young blood transfusions. Now, who'd have thought we'd ever need a warning (laughs) against that? But apparently, although it's not a hit here in Ireland, it's quite popular in the States, especially in California, um, around the tech circle. Yeah, yeah, which which is bonkers (laughs) that the, the Food and Drug Administration in America that sort of licenses drugs is saying, listen, don't be don't be taking young people's blood mm-hmm. and injecting it in yourself. Yeah, and people are doing it for quite a price as well, which is quite amazing. Um, so this is actually <laughs> happening in yeah. America in the tech scene. Yeah, and it's really, it's quite trendy. So you can get a transfusion of blood from somebody between the ages of 16 and 25, which is young, um, but only if you're over 35, which is old, apparently, uh, which is quite disappointing. Right. But for eight grand or $8,000, you can get 1.5 litres of this blood um, over two days uh, transfusion in, in, or basically but the idea to. behind this, uh, <laughs> the idea behind this is uh, is not uh, crazy in in some respects because it's based on good science. It is well, yes, there's some element of good science. So um, historically speaking, this is based on a. a a science called uh, parabiosis, which is basically where you're uh, changing blood between two species. So what they did and started in, uh, really started in the 1860s, but this really took off in the 1970s, where people were looking at, uh, researchers were looking at getting two mice and sewing them together. So cutting their skin open and sewing them together and re-sewing them back together. Um, so you'd make it. Which sounds horrific. It is, and it looks horrific, actually, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but what happens then is that uh, new blood vessels form between the two mice and then they start to shed blood and the blood starts circulating between the two organs of the mice um, which you might wonder why people do that or why that was interesting in the 1970s and actually a lot of break- 
breakthroughs in immunology and in molecular or in um, tumor biology came through because they were able to look at these unusual um, setups within the lab. Th- this, this, there, there was a company called Ambrosia, which is a gross yeah. name for a company, but that was doing this. But they're not doing it anymore. They're not doing it anymore because they've been asked by the FDA or have been told by the FDA that this. Um, well, they've just they listened to the FDA is advice saying, look, this isn't going to be. Um, this isn't something that there's evidence for. There's no clinical evidence for it. In fact, there's risk, too much risk associated with it. I mean, people get plasma and blood all the time, but most of the time it's in um, tense situations where you've maybe trauma or people who have difficulty with blood clotting, etc. Um, so as a run of the mill for a healthy person to take that, it's, it's not advised. Um, and because of the, the uh, feedback from the FDA, um, who are also nervous about people maybe using this as an alternative to safe, effective medicines. So, for example, in, <laughs> yeah. in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, where they kind of are looking f- uh, at this um, as treatment for, you know, there's better options out there. So the FDA is saying this isn't possibly the way to go. And the, the people of uh, the Ambrosia place um, and then there's another place called the Young Blood Institute. I don't know if they've taken action yet, but Ambrosia have closed their doors and said we don't do this anymore. Right. So God, that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, like, it, again, it sounds like, it. you know, it sounds like it could be a really good idea. Like if you are young and you donate blood and, and actually, you know, it's definitely it actually could be helpful to, to people, you know, with, uh, who are aging. I mean, it's a it's a wonderfully Marxist idea. <laughs> mm, you know? I think it's life imitating art. I'd say a lot of this comes from like the Twilight generation, just like, you know. <laughs> Maybe. Mm. Um, uh, our second story, Shane, has to do with um, the Hayabusa 2 Pro. Yeah, this is like perhaps the most advanced smash and grab uh, that science has ever been involved with. So the Japanese, what a great age we live in for space at the moment. We're in the second space age, um, space race. And so there, there's been a Japanese probe um, that's been tailgating a, 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 a comet or um, a meteor or an asteroid rather out in, in space. And it's it's about to just land onto it. But it's going to do so in a way as they describe as a delicate kiss. So they're going to come <laughs> down. <laughs> they're going to come down uh, to the surface. And then uh, just as they reach the, the surface, they're going to spit out a pellet, a very, very hard pellet. That's going to cause dust on the surface to spray up and um, the Japanese um, mission is designed to collect that dust and then return it to Earth. We're talking about a 5 billion kilometre round trip. They're going to bring back approximately 10 grams of dust. So all that trip to bring back 10 grams of dust. And you might ask, Jonathan, why in the name <laughs> no, of God I love would this. you do this? I love this. Mm, well, it's it's very interesting. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently saying, why is Earth the way it is? If you're going to make a planet, what, like how do, you, how do you make them? And why is our planet different to the, the neighbouring planets? And it turns out we don't know much about this. Venus is very similar to Earth, um, but yet it's very, very different at the same time. And mm. so... How did we get our water? Where did the materials that became um, organic life come from? These are still unknown questions. And so we, we know that these asteroids are basically the, um, the beginnings of planets and uh, they weren't captured into planets in the early solar system. But if we were able to capture some of the material that they're made from and look at the makeup of that material, we might be able to answer questions about how our Earth was formed. Yeah. Now, to date, what we've done is we've looked at meteorites that have landed on Earth and we've looked at what they're made of. But of course, kind they, of an easier way of doing it. It is, but, think about it. but it's it, they've literally been put through the ringer. So as they've been um, um, descending to Earth, they've the, been cleansed of all their exactly. alien DNA. 
Yeah. No, that did not happen. No, no, but um, I think the you know the idea of the, the you know the audacity of it. I think it's like you know when we think about people who you know go to the South Pole you know in a bikini or you know the, oh, the people who, who yeah. climb Everest um, you know uh, with you know without legs. The, you know the sort of stuff that people do mm-hmm. to try and uh, and push the limits of human achievement further. I think this is absolutely amazing feat to What's do. What's really cool here too is that the, this has been is an autonomous um, uh, uh, unit. So it is working, it's thinking itself. Uh, so there isn't somebody back in Tokyo who's controlling this with a joystick. It, it it will have to sense and react itself. And I think this is a real step forward too in our ability to send missions out into space and for them to have this intelligence. Because of course the delay between Earth and uh, this rover would be significant so that you wouldn't be able to react in real time. Yeah. Um, our third story has to do with DNA and people might be familiar uh, Susan from hearing this program uh, that uh, in in the book of life we have four letters that with which we write how to make things everything from a banana to a chimpanzee to a human being G A T C the the bases that we talk about that's right what's this story about so um, this story comes from um, thirty five years of work um, in uh, a range of different institutes but headed by a guy called Stephen Benner and what he's looked at is trying to produce new ones of these letters so new letters that we can add to our genetic alphabet and what he's managed to do now him and his team um, is to add four new letters to this alphabet so we know that we have four bases uh, they're called the bases these these um, they're like building blocks for DNA so you have A, T, uh, G and C and what the guys have done um, in this, this research is they've now found four more they've given them the letters S, B, P and Z um, by changing the chemistry of the A, T, C and D. So they're not that much different, but they are able to slot in seamlessly into um, a genome. Into, the, into a genome or into a small, they're not doing obviously full genomes at the moment, but they're doing small pieces of, of DNA. So, so they're so, ultimately so, doubling, uh, doubling the amount of building blocks that you can build something with from DNA. So uh, we do not see this in nature anywhere? No, nowhere. Nowhere in life. All life that we know of is built from the four letters that we have. Um, now, there was some work done before where they've added in um, what the media called X and Y. So another group looked at adding in two more letters, but those two letters made the DNA quite unstable. And so the DNA didn't really function very well. Um, if you can imagine it like a zip, so you have two strands of DNA and then the teeth on the zip are the, these bases, and these building blocks. And if you've got one that's broken, we know you can't get your zip closed. So the problem is that when you've got DNA bases that are in there that don't really function, the the zip or the DNA doesn't work anymore. So when it collapses, so the the work that was done before this X and Y um, showed a really nice, you know, showed to be able to be incorporated into DNA, but wasn't, you know, believed to to maybe have a lifetime or be able to to stay stable. Well, so what does it mean adding these four letters to uh, the the available letters to you? So what does it mean? So I suppose the way I would look at it is if you're thinking of painting a picture, um, all life or imagine all imagine all art from now till whenever people started painting were were painted with uh, pictures were painted with four colours: so red, yellow, blue, and green. Um, and that's what all paintings just had those four colours in them. But imagine now that you're able to do it with pink and orange, purple and grey. You can imagine the vast change that would be in the art world. And and imagine now we're not only thinking of painting pictures, but we're creating life. So the idea of like life just being created by four base pairs and four building blocks now having eight to choose from. So, so, but, so I mean, but we, can, we haven't put this in a living organism no, yet. No, not. So what they've been able to do is they've been able to take it to the next step. So in terms of getting DNA to be able to produce the proteins that, that this is what that function, a lot of the function is in DNA, um, those proteins, they haven't got to that stage, but they've got it to say step one of that stage where they've been able to translate it into um, the 
into the next step, into the RNA, basically. So you could have synthetic biochemistry then, right? But this is yeah, yeah this is it. Yeah. Um, and they have, with the X and Y, they were able to put that into a bacterium. They were able to feed it into the bacterium system. They were able to uh, take it up into their DNA and replicate it and, and send it on down to their into their, their sons and daughters. Um, Science fiction writers listen to this program they're <laughs> squibbling fiercely. But uh, then when, uh, when they took that X and Y away, they, they, you know, the, the bacteria can't produce them themselves. So, so, that's, so uh, that's, the, that's the thing. Because that's if, if you thing, could, yeah. if, is a, if an, as an organism you can recreate those letters and replicate and grow. Then we've created alien life form in the, you know that can do its own thing. That's pretty But awesome. it is fascinating to think about all the different types of proteins that might form because if we have a set number of a library of proteins that we know of in the world produced from just four letters the amount of different proteins that could be produced from eight. Invisibility. <laughs> Absolutely. Complete charm. Like yes. all these magical powers. That this is there's a lot of physics from. wrong with invisibility. <laughs> Stop it. Uh, our final story, Shane, quickly has to do with zebras. Yeah. So why do uh, zebras have uh, zebra, Jonathan? Why do zebras have stripes? Well, perhaps it's an evolutionary advantage, right? But w- what evolutionary advantage? Hiding in the grass. It, potentially, Shadows. yes. But it might also be that they are less likely to be bitten by insects. Uh, and so what they have done, these clever people in Bristol, is they have compared zebras to horses. Um, they've looked at horse flies that have come up close to uh, both creatures and they see that the uh, the horse flies become disorientated and literally crash into the zebras when they have stripes. <laughs> like a pigeon into a, a large gla- pane yes. of glass. And in order to prove this isn't smells or some other thing, they dressed horses in stripy clothes and, then <laughs> <laughs> and they continued to observe. These are zoologists, I guess, my <laughs> wonderful people. Uh, and they saw that when the horses were dressed in zebra costumes, I've just tweeted a picture of it, and um, they so that uh, in that scenario, the horseflies also uh, become disorientated. The next stage of this research would, of course, be to replicate it in, in Africa or in places where, where zebras are native. What, do horseflies bite horses? Is that why they're called horseflies? Yes. I didn't know that. There you yeah, go. there you go. I, I mean, of all the things I've learned today, there's probably one that probably most people knew, but I didn't know that. So um, this reminds me of the, the story of Razzle Dazzle. Um, in, um, the, the, it's a, a type of camo that was developed um, by the US military, I believe, that when you look at it, totally disguises ships because it's a paint of... Um, sort of uh, discordant uh, geometric shapes on a on a, sh- a ship. Oh, First and, World War ships were yeah. painted like this. And, and so yeah. when you look at it, you don't know if it's going forwards or backwards. And that sort of um, uh, uh, confusion gives mm. you the, uh, the the tactical advantage in the, in the water. Interesting. Um, that's it from our news round. Uh, Dr. Shane Berger from UCD and, and Dr. Susan Kelleher. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, GPS has transformed the way we navigate the world. We can effortlessly get from one place to another without a second thought. But how would we get around without the help of the constellation of satellites above us? Uh, For me, I'd be completely lost. Well, uh, here to explain how our brains work when it comes to navigation is Jakob Belmont. He's cognitive scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Scientists. Uh, Jakob, what do we know about um, how uh, human beings navigate the world? How does that happen in our brains? Because I would have thought it was mostly based on memory. Uh, yeah, first of all, hi, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. So we know uh, we know quite a bit about uh, how, how this might work from uh, from a lot of work that has been, been done in, in animals, and it seems that a brain region uh, called the hippocampus and the, the entorhinal cortex uh, seem to be very crucial brain structures uh, for, for our navigation system. So, so you said entorhinal. I presume that's something to do with the nose. 
Uh, no, so it's not, well, it's not, it's not the nose. So in, in the ah. human brain, the, the hippocampus and the entorhinal cortex are located very deep in the, basically in the middle of the brain. Um, and they're, they're quite old structures from an evolutionary perspective. So a lot of research has been done on, on these structures in, uh, in rodents and in, in rats and mice. And um, many people have uh, made fascinating discoveries uh, about about how uh, how this brain region re represents space for navigation. Like what sort of studies? So so these are studies where uh, where for example a rodent navigates a very simple environment. So the rodent uh, navigates uh, around a box uh, and and uh, it forages for food. So the the researcher um, puts in some cookie crumbs, for example, and uh, the rodent uh, goes looking for them. And uh, the researchers then look at the activity of of neurons in, in, in this brain region, in the hippocampus and the entorhinal cortex. Yeah. And what they've discovered is that there are very specialized cell types. Uh, some of them are called place cells, which were discovered in the 1970s already by, uh, by John O'Keefe. Place cells. Place cells. So, so these are cells that, that are basically active at one specific position in space. So one cell has one specific position in space where it's active and fires action potential. Whoa, 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 whoa. So you're telling me that if I took a step backwards, a place cell would fire for that place. And then if I took two steps forwards, a different neuron would fire because that's I was in a different place. Exactly. That's that's exactly right. Wow. So the idea is that together, these uh, these kind of place cells build a map of your environment. So if you if you navigate around your house, uh, you have some cells that are active in your bedroom and then there are some that are active in the kitchen. And together, you kind of have a map, and you can use this to navigate from A to B. No, so, I don't. I don't buy that. I, I don't. I don't see how that could happen. How is that possible? We we go. I mean, we travel all around the world. You're telling me I have a neuron for when I was uh, in French Guiana, and I was a neuron from when I was in Morocco. I'm telling you about all the cool places I've been. Uh, but you're telling me that there are specific neurons that fire that are that are for those places. Indeed. So, uh, so the idea is that the, the hippocampus can very quickly form maps of new environments that you encounter. So, um, as, as I said, for example, you have one map for your house and maybe there's one, uh, one map for, uh, for the hotel where you stay when you're in Morocco. And uh, so you can basically build new maps and there's a process which is called remapping, where basically you kind of shuffle the pool of cells and, uh, for, and then for a new space, a new map can kind of uh, emerge or be built. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's truly fascinating. And so uh, this, this research and, uh, on, on the hippocampus and the entorhinal cortex um, was, was really pushed forward by John O'Keefe and Edward and Maybert Moser, uh, who received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in, in 2014 for, for the identification of these, these cell types. So John O'Keefe with the place we talked about and then Edvard Moser and Maybert Moser from uh, from Norway they discovered what uh, what's called grid cells which, yeah so so what are grid cells yeah so so as we as we talked about these place cells they have one field one location where they're active and a grid cell has many fields um, or many positions where where it fires uh, but these are distributed in a very regular pattern across the environment so basically uh, they kind of are thought to provide some kind of coordinate system for um, for space, so we can know how far we've traveled. Wow! So it's it, it sort of links these places together in a way. Yeah, in a way you could uh, you could 
think of that. Yeah, so you can, we, we think that they're used for, for path integrations or kind of keeping track of how far along a trajectory we've moved, for example, so we can find our way back. But there are, but you know, the variability in terms of people being able to do that is pretty high, right? Aideen has just texted in saying, what about people with no sense of direction like me? Does she have fewer of these cells or are they not firing or what's wrong with Aideen? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. So uh, <laughs> let, let's hope she does uh, have some sense of orientation, of course. Um, so there are, there are, of course, very large differences between how well people can do this. And it's also, uh, in a way, a, ma a matter of practice, I guess. Um, but but that's, that's very, very interesting to find out, basically, what, what happens if, um, if people fail to navigate. But so we, for example, retrieve a wrong map or, uh, yeah, w what goes wrong? It's, uh, we're not we, quite we're, sure yet. We're not quite sure yet, no. Okay, so... Um, what about memories then? Does memory play no part in uh, in helping us navigate if we have these place cells and these grid cells, or how do they interact? Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. So, the, so the hippocampus and the uh, is a is a brain structure that's also very very important for memory, and uh, this is something that we know from a lot of of human work. So, um, we we know basically that if uh, if the hippocampus is damaged, our memory system. Uh, is uh, is strongly impaired, so we, we can't really form new memories. Mm. And so there there seems to be a very strong uh, strong link between the two. And if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, I think that that kind of also makes sense. We need to remember where we can find food, or we need to remember where where it's dangerous, for example, where we shouldn't go again, or where we should go again because there's there's a good source of food or yeah. or, or something like that. So it it sort of makes sense that these uh, these cells or, or this uh, this brain structure might uh, might be doing both. Yeah. So uh, where does your research come in then tying this together, Jakob? Right. Uh, so we've uh, we've recently made a made a proposal where we describe that uh, we think that the brain really uses the the same mechanisms that it uses to uh, to map space to also organize our memories and our knowledge. So, so these place cells and these grid cells that uh, normally we think build maps of our environment, we think that they also can kind of organize our memories or um, build maps of, of features of, of objects that we, uh, that we kind of encounter so yeah. that we can uh, kind of organize our experience of the, of the external world. What do you mean, like a, a red wall or a, a, a leafy path? Right, no, so, so let's... Uh, Maybe one example is uh, let, let's uh, let's think about different animals. So so there are different animals. They all have different kind of uh, kind of features, right? So the uh, the way they look differs. Some have fur, some don't have fur. Some have four legs, some have wings, uh, and so on. Some are taller, some are smaller. Yep. Some can run fast, some cannot uh, can cannot move so quickly, right? And so basically, you can um, you can think of these different different properties as as kind of dimensions of a space. So um, let's say one dimension is how fast an animal can move, and the other dimension is how tall it is. Right. And, um, and building it's a, on, and you're saying it's the same cells that organize uh, the the place and where how far we've traveled that actually also organize these features of something in our brain. Exactly. Yeah. So so based on on a lot of new research that's been done by many brilliant people in in uh, labs around the entire world. Uh, shows that these these place cells and these grid cells they can also map other things than than just space. So they can, for example, map the frequency of sound or progression of of time, 
uh, and also the features of uh, of objects. So, is it so usual for a brain cell to have its sort of multi functions like that? Sorry, can you say that again? I is it usual? That... Is it usual for a brain cell to have multi functions like that? Right. So th that's very fascinating to to me, at least, that uh, that they can be so flexible, right? So that they uh, that that they can really basically serve different, um, yeah, look at different properties of things, so different dimensions. Um, uh, so to me, that's uh, yeah, that's that's very fascinating that this uh, seems to be possible. Um, Dan from Stonyford says, do we use grid cells on sort of conceptual stuff as well as, you know, physical maps, like how um, variables might be connected in a leaving search theorem or, or like a computer code or it's like a, a conceptual map of things that we create in our mind as opposed to a physical geological map? Yeah, so so this is kind of the idea. So if we if we think about the um, uh, this animal space, right, so the, there are different dimensions and then animals that are similar, they are located at similar positions in this space, right? So let's say we know that there's a lion and a tiger. Um, they, they are fairly similar. They both have four legs. They can run probably faster than me. Uh, they have fur and so on. So, right. so they are at a similar position in this, in this space. Whereas if you compare, say, uh, a tiger and, uh, and an elephant, they're a lot more different. But you know what, and that, that makes absolute sense to me, Jakob, because uh, when I go to the family picnic with my wife, we get together like about 50 of us under a barn in um, in Westmead for a day. And it's a lovely day, but I'm always struggling to remember Dara's cousins. And that's because I, I know they're, I see them only at the at the barbecue and they're, they look quite similar. They both have, you know, kids. I'm not sure who, who, whose kids is which. And as a result, I have placed them both in the similar partner brain. And that's why... Uh, it would make sense that, they, that the same neurons are firing. Uh, Jakob Bellman, cognitive neuroscientist at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive Sciences and Brain, thank you very much for joining us. I find that absolutely bonkers. The idea that there is a cell for every place you have been, a new cell that fires. And if you go back to that place, that old cell fires. And if you go to a new place, it's a new. That's just bonkers to me that our brain could, could hold all that information. Um, right, it's time to love. Look, it's time to love. It's time to look at your emails and texts from last week. Uh, if you want to, you know, comment on something, we'll try and respond. And we'll have a look up if you have a question. Uh, science at newstalk.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. So last week, um, a company called Core Design published a paper in which they claimed uh, the, the paper wasn't out last week, but we talked about it last week, uh, in which they claimed that. Uh, gum disease may be responsible for uh, Alzheimer's. And they said, look, there's some pretty good evidence that suggests that it might be. We had Deborah McKenzie from New Scientist on. And we were like, oh, my God, this is so exciting. Um, and I was like, I just uh, because, it, uh, you know, partially knowing the devastation that something like Alzheimer's does, um, you just want it to be true. You want us to have found something that we overlooked or some marker or something in, in, in that can be easily fixed and, and then cure Alzheimer's. That's what I, you know, that's what you want. Um, it, it, on reflection, it seems that we went probably a little bit uh, too far on our, in our enthusiasm for this story. Uh, Professor uh, Kevin Mitchell, um, who is often king of debunking, uh, uh, he does, his Twitter is wiring the brain on Twitter. Uh, he sort of threw up some red flags and said, look, I don't think the evidence suggests that. 
Um, there are one or two stories in the news that also say, look, it could be, but the evidence doesn't suggest it. Um, and, and, and Kevin Mitchell sort of said, neither in humans nor in the, uh, in the rodent trials that they did. And I suppose it's disappointing for us because I think it's probably one of the first times, maybe it's the second time in 10 years that we've had to do sort of a retraction, which this is a retraction on that story. Say, so look, we, we, um, we ran it enthusiastically and probably without due, um, due questioning uh, because of, uh, well, because of the source of the story, New Science is a very reputable um, magazine, um, but also uh, because uh, it had been reported quite widely elsewhere. elsewhere. Um, and, and, you know, I have to say I'm guilty sometimes of the bias as a broadcaster that new, you know, sort of like radical stories like that where it seems like, you know, and we don't, it's not like we fall for, you know, I just think the evidence doesn't seem to show it. Obviously, there's incentives for a company that has uh, got patents in an area um, to say something is very promising that may or may not be the case in this particular uh, instance. But um, there, there are questions about whether or not Alzheimer's and gum disease is linked Emmett Walsh, a medical herbalist physician, heard the piece and rang us up and said, India is 100 times less prone to develop Alzheimer's than in the Western world. Uh, there won't be an increase in world populations with Alzheimer's. Uh, because of this, the best statistics come from California and Britain. There is a vast increased number in California. Turmeric, um, a chemical found, a compound found in turmeric is curcumin, uh, is the reason, uh, says Emmett. It has significant cerebral anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, it is true that turmeric has been proven to have anti-inflammatory properties. It hasn't been proven that it is the reason, in fact, um, uh, looking at uh, alzheimers.org.uk, um, there is a significantly lower rate of Alzheimer's in, in Asian populations. Absolutely. Um, it is not 100 times by my maths. Um, uh, it does seem unlikely, alzheimers.org.uk says, quote, that it is respons- that turmeric itself is responsible for this and the limited clinical trials conducted do not support the findings of the in vitro uh, studies. So... Um, Essentially, the evidence for turmeric being um, anti-Alzheimer's um, um, in India and, reason, and a reason why they have significantly lower um, rates, the evidence doesn't stack up to that, Emmett, as far as we could research. Um, overall prevalence of dementia in general, uh, in particular, tends to be higher in uh, developed countries than in developing ones. Um, the higher prevalence in developed countries uh, was attributed to differences in the level of exposure to cerebrovascular risk factors like hypertension, smoking, obesity, and diabetes. Uh, still, it's a big difference between us and Asia. Um, like, if we look at 2001, uh, we look at Western Europe, the n- absolute number of cases of dementia per 100, uh, in, sorry, in millions, 4.9 in Western Europe, and only 0. 0.6 in Indonesia, Thailand, and Sri Lanka, 1.8 in India. So, you know, you're talking about, it's, you know, nearly eight times less in uh, in India, Thailand, Sri Lanka. Um, there are, there are, could be a million different factors. And, you know, I always, you know, try and, trying to explain correlation and causation to my children. I always, you know, I talk to them about the, uh, the tiger repellent rock that I gave them, you know, uh, and they say, you know, it's not, it doesn't work. And I say, well, do you see any tigers around? And then they don't know what to say. And I feel smarter than a four-year-old. So anyway, we got a big uh, number of uh, comments on that. Hugh from Cork says, just to be witty, which toothpaste companies are indirectly fund- funding Alzheimer's research? Um, yeah, do you know what? I like your, I like the way you're thinking, you know, question the source, Hugh, but I don't think um, any toothpaste companies were involved in that. Um, 
Floss companies, maybe. Floss companies. Now, um, we were talking about uh, the missing DNA. So in the Human Genome Project 2003, this um, uh, human genome was put together. 70% of it was from one guy, and then the rest was from 50 other people. But they missed, uh, it seems, quite a bit of um, DNA that is found in other people who are humans. Um, and so we were asking about that um, uh, Hugh says, uh, regarding the Genome Project, surely any scientist understood the sequencing's potential limitations. You know, um, we talked about the fact that they the, they were aware uh, at the time that it didn't cover all, all the entire uh, human gamut, um, but it, it was used as a reference model using, um, I think probably the time pressure had an influence on the completeness, if, if, if my understanding of, of the story is right, of this human genome. Um, a potent, possibly they did, but certainly it's not something that I was aware of until recently. I think that the human population uh, probably didn't realize, the, the, the general population probably didn't realize uh, that this human genome project was missing so much. Um, we were also talking about p uh, pesticides, and uh, this was in the news uh, that uh, certain types of pesticides are having a devastating effect on ecosystems and uh, and also uh, are linked uh, in some studies to an increase in certain types of cancer. Uh, John Lynch says, potatoes that are sprayed with Roundup are in the food chain within two weeks of being sprayed and some of them are over the ground, so I can't understand why there are no checks carried out on the chips that are sold in takeaways. Interesting point, John, um, but for the general population, exposure to applied pesticides occurs mainly through residues uh, remaining in the food of plant origin, says the Food Safety Authority. And maximum residue limits are put in place to control the use of plant protection products like pesticides. Um, uh, these sort of limits for food are set out in EU legislation and they're enforced by means of a national surveillance program, which sounds spooky, but actually it's probably good in this case, right? Uh, that's the Food Safety Authority checking to make sure there's no roundup in your chips. So um, dig away, John. Uh, and finally, uh, we were talking about horrific um, levels of uh, essentially, I was going to say genocide, but it's not, not quite genocide, is it? Insecticide um, of populations uh, partially again due to this, the, uh, in this, but also climate change. And someone says, you're worried about the decrease in the number of insects in the world, but your radio station has a lot of ads for cars. Surely cars and roads contribute majorly to the loss of habitats that insects need. So perhaps start with your own bosses. So sort of stick it to the man is the suggestion here. Um, well, you know, I admire the sentiment. And if you could roll back the clock um, and undo a number of inventions, uh, cars, uh, you know, Farming, intensive farming. There's a bunch of things that if we, you know, if we could somehow rewind the clock, the world would be a much better place. I think it's really unpractical to imagine um, a world or a city without cars um, at the moment. Um, but I do take your point. Uh, you know, we, we, every single part of the puzzle is a problem. That can sometimes lead to a rather defeatist end to a radio program, as in this case. Um, I'll see you later in the week for more Future Proof Extra and Future Proof Gold. Find it where you found this. That's it from us for this week. Simon Keane was uh, producing this week. Aidan McKelvey was series producer. Jojo Cardozo was on sound. In the box was Owen Brennan. I'll see you in a few days. In the meantime, stay curious. Stay curious.